Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Doomed Youth edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm here to wish you a very Merry Christmas, because it's Christmas time, with Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction. And happy Hanukkah. Hello, everyone. And Hanukkah time. And Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist at Slate. And it's Festivus for the rest of us. And we are going <laughs> to nice. do a very unholiday. There's nothing holiday themed about this episode of Slate Money. It's a perfectly normal episode of Slate Money. For the festivities, you're going to have to wait until next week and the craft beer edition. Um, with This week, we're going to be talking about the Chinese educational system, what we know about it and what they're up to. We're going to be talking about whether Google and Facebook and Twitter have any role to pe- play in, in mass shootings. I'm going to be talking about lead poisoning. You know, it's going to be one of those kind of episodes. Um, Far from uplifting. If you have things that you want us to talk about or if you have questions that you want us to answer, we, you, we have been getting questions. Um, at our email address, which is slatemoney at slate.com. And we sometimes answer them by email and we sometimes don't answer them. But we're thinking about maybe doing a little Q&A segment, adding a little Q&A segment to this show. So if you have a question that you want us to answer, send it in and we'll see if we can add a, an, a Q&A segment. We might call you back. We might ask you to record it on a voice memo or something. We haven't entirely worked this thing out, but it's going to be fun. Could, could be like questions like, so we could give advice to people? Yeah. So Kathy O'Neill has an <laughs> advice column at mathbabe.org. I used to. I used to. And I kind of miss it. It's called Aunt Pythia. Yeah. And maybe maybe Aunt Pythia can make an appearance on Slate Money. Aunt Pythia would love to. So we might have some, we might, yeah, if you want advice, send in your questions which require advice. And also the other thing is now that we have recorded a rosé wine episode and we have recorded a craft beer episode, we are thinking about should we record a cocktail episode? And that's, it would only our, happen once our our hangovers are, are done, from which the might craft be a couple more months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, the, but again, because we are suffering from a seriously hungover failure of imagination here, we need your ideas for what we would actually talk about on a cocktail episode. Frankly, I think every episode should be a cocktail episode of Slate Money, but that's that's another story. So send us your questions. Send us your cocktail questions. Send us your feedback. Send us you know, funny jokes because it's that time of year. Dad jokes are always welcome. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. But let's get 
into this whole thing of lead poisoning because I feel like if we can't just have a depressing story to kick off the show, then when can we have a depressing story? I don't think it's that depressing. It's pretty depressing. Okay. So, okay, so here's the story. The story is a Reuters report which came out last week and this was everything that you love about journalism where they went out and they literally asked every single census tract in the country and there are 74,000 of these things like what their incidence of lead poisoning was in children so that's this is it turns out children under the age of six and the answers were quite scary um that if you use flint let, let's give a couple of baselines here number one the nationwide incidence of lead poisoning in children is 2.5 percent in the Flint, Michigan water poisoning scandal, the incidence of lead poisoning in Flint was 5%, double yep. the national average. Mm -hmm. And there were areas of Flint where it got up to as high as 11%. If you look at the nation as a whole, Reuters didn't manage to look at the entire nation, but it managed to find about 61% of the nation in, in 21 different states. Um, there were areas of the um, of America, where which had much much higher lead poisoning than in, that. into the thirties in some places. So let, let me give you some some numbers here because because um, they're really scary. If you go to St. Joseph, Missouri, there were seven different census tracts where you, it was over fifteen percent. Um, in one of them, it was twenty percent. In Baltimore, there was a whole group of census tracts where you found between twenty five and forty percent of children with elevated lead in there blood and in pennsylvania there were 49 different census tracts 49 just in pennsylvania where more than 40 percent of children had yeah. elevated levels and, and, of lead and, and we should be clear when we're talking about census tract that's that's almost the neighborhood essentially it's about four thousand people. people so you're talking about a very small area but i mean that that is almost more or it is more important information than a whole state because it gives you that micro sense of where if you live in Pennsylvania where you're actually in danger from from lead. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to be a little bit positive about this. Number 1, it's always good when something that's truly bad that's happening is uncovered. So like that's already good because I mean, it's in other words it's progress on the problem of lead poisoning which is a real real problem. But the other thing I want to mention is that historically I think lead poisoning was a much harder, much bigger deal. We had much more. Like I would like to see this compared to 20 years ago. So this is an incredibly good point. And it's one of the... I wrote about this, uh, and I, one of the more interesting bits of feedback I got is that there are two different things that you look at when you're looking at lead poisoning. And Reuters only mentioned one, which is the incidence of children with elevated lead levels. The other thing which you look at is how high are the lead levels? And broadly speaking, over the past few decades, both of them have been coming down a lot. The, the incidence has been, I mean, it's still far too high, but it's been coming down. And the level of lead, which is considered to be elevated, has also been coming down. Right, that's what the next thing I was going to say. And, yeah. so, and so the levels of lead in children's blood that we are getting really worried about today would have been quite normal when I was a child. And I probably had them myself. Yeah. And do we have that data from twenty years ago? We do. And and the and the levels of lead were high and the incidence of lead in children at the levels that people get worried about now, which people weren't actually worried about levels that low twenty or thirty years ago, um, were probably over eighty or ninety percent um back right. in the seventies. And 
there is a sense in there, there. There is a feeling among some people of like, well, I grew up in the seventies and I'm okay, so I don't know why we're worried about this. But I think that's very wrong, and I think that one of the reasons why the world is a better place now is precisely because we have much less lead in our blood, and that we can lose sight of the amount of the. We can lose sight of the degree that violence has decreased and antisocial behavior has decreased over the past 20 or 30 years. And most of that, I think, is actually attributable to lead. And it the fact is that we weren't okay in the 70s. I, I can't completely agree. And by the way, like my brother, um, my brother was diagnosed with autism in the 70s and probably more like Asperger's syndrome. But one of the reasons it took them forever to diagnose him with anything is because so many kids around us were poisoned with lead and it, the, the symptoms aren't that different. I mean, in other words, like we are much more aware of how weird behavior among our children um, can be can be caused by a disease. We used to just say, oh, that's just being a kid being a kid. So so let's just back up a bit, Kathy. What, what does lead poisoning do? I mean, I don't I'm not an expert on lead poisoning, but I know it has a lot to do with a lack of focus. Um, lots of mood swings yeah. and just basically decreased mental it, capacity. It, it, it reduces IQ. It yeah. reduces, yeah, um, mental development, and it also increases antisocial behavior and violence. And one of the things, one of my favorite pieces of science is the studies which look at what happens to rates of adolescent violence in states and countries around the world. 16 to 20 years after they move to unleaded gasoline. Yeah. And it just plunges yeah. every single time. So I kind of I kind of want to talk about the money aspect of this since this is slight money or at least kind of the policy aspect of this because it, it really, it, it's, it's a tricky problem to solve, right? Because this isn't, most of these places aren't necessarily suffering from the same problems as Flint. It's not necessarily lead in the water. A lot of it is, you know, lead left over in the soil, maybe from old industrial plants in the area. A lot of that's probably in Pennsylvania. A lot of it is just lead from homes. From yeah, I mean, that's not necessarily the majority of the problem. From paint, but, in but it's paint. Yeah, yeah, it's old houses that still have lead paint that's flaking and dusting, and kids are Although breathing. Although it's hard to tell. Like, yeah. if you read the Reuters report. It's filled as journalism is these days with lots of anecdotes. They went yes. out to these places and they found kids, and these kids invariably were growing up in homes with lead paint. But one of the problems is that it's impossible to really be sure about the causality. And what? the thing which terrifies me is that in a lot of states and a lot of cities, they're deliberately underplaying the amount of lead in the water by requiring, for instance, when they test the water, that people run their taps for five minutes before yeah, you know, testing the so water bogus, and that yeah. kind of stuff. That's... And they're basically flushing the lead down the drain before testing the water. Well, so that comes back to the, what you bring up, though. It's hard to tell exactly where the lead comes from all the time. And so that, that brings up this question of responsibility, right? These, you know, these, these small communities can't necessarily afford to do... A, a big lead cleanup. These census tracts can, certainly can't do it. A lot of these people can't even afford to redo their, repaint their own homes, you know? And then when you've had attempts to maybe, for instance, sue the paint companies that provide, that were hawking lead paint for 50 years, even though they, it seems, knew the dangers of it, kind of big tobacco style, a lot of those lawsuits have up until recently failed because hmm. they haven't been able to prove that maybe it was Sherman, Dutch Boy's actual paint in that house that caused the problem. There, there's one lawsuit ongoing right now um, against Sherman Williams, a few other companies that actually uh, the 
some cities in California won a big billion dollar verdict to kind of help clean up the lead situation in California. But that's being appealed. It's not clear how that's going to um, how that's going to play out. So you have this kind of diffusion of responsibility. And the only thing you can really think of that to deal with it is maybe have like a state level action. But then this isn't necessarily a priority for most states because it's basically spending money on the very, very poor. Those are the people most affected by it. Often. And I mean, the Reuters investigation found elevated lead levels in all types of census tracts. It wasn't only the poor, but this is, you're absolutely right, more, much more of a problem of poverty than, than it is of, uh, for, for rich people because rich people can pay to alleviate lead. They can replace their lead pipes. They can, you know, do sophisticated lead remediation on their old homes and, it, and the problem is more likely to be solved. Well, also, I think you can, you know, just say they're less likely to live in old industrial areas where there was lead settling into the soil from whatever emissions were cut, were, were, were floating around in the air. I mean, um, that's just... It's yeah, not, m- most old industrial you know. areas are now relatively poor. Some are now relatively rich. And so, yeah. as I say, it happens. It's not just poor people. The one thing I want to mentioned because this is slate money and we have kathy here is my little bit of stats nerdery that i did on this story which is that if you're looking for patterns without having a hypothesis at the beginning of where these pockets are going to be you can wind up being what nasim talib would call fooled by randomness that if you just take the six hundred thousand children in america who have elevated lead levels and distribute them randomly across America, there are going to be pockets of higher density areas and lower density areas. And so I actually did the math with the help of this um, lovely woman from George Mason University. Rebecca Golden. Rebecca Golden. Who's a friend of mine. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. And she did the math for me, which was amazing. And she basically said that if there's two and a half percent um, lead poisoning in America, then you would expect about 484 census tracts to have 5% lead poisoning and basically zero to have 10% or higher. And of course, the numbers which Reuters found them way higher than that. And I just wish those numbers had been the report because I'm a stats nerd. Yeah, I like that analysis. And I'm going to I'm gonna ask a philosophical question about it. I mean, I definitely think that Reuters should have thought about that, should have said, hey, like, if this were, if these kids were randomly distributed, what would it look like? And what does it actually look like? So compare it to that baseline. But I do question, and it's a philosophical question, do we expect lead poisoning to be randomly distributed? Because I actually, it's like, it's that analysis that you just mentioned mm-hmm. is perfect with cancer. Because you do think cancer is random, right? But with lead poisoning, I kind of feel like it's not random. There's always a cause. And as Jordan points out very importantly, we don't know exactly the cause. Um, There's lots of different causes. We don't exactly know the causality. Okay, so for instance, in the days when lead poisoning was coming from pencils and gasoline, you would expect it to be much more evenly distributed. That's true. That's true. But nowadays when we're being much more hypersensitive to it, my my point is like if we find a pocket of kids with lead, we expect there to be a cause for that, right? We expect to find it because like it's, let me put it this way: kids aren't born with lead poisoning, right? There's always a reason they have lead poisoning. Any given child, you would expect there to be a, a sort of narrative about why they have lead yeah, poisoning. So it's a not point. a random event. Yeah, that, that I, is a good point. And I think as probably over time, as it's become less evenly distributed and classes become more of a role, you would expect more of the more uh, of it to be occurring in concentrated pockets i mean that's yeah. that's and in fact that's 
I mean, in a weird way, that's the good news. The, the fact that it's in concentrated pockets is the good news because it's much easier, it's much more tractable if it's in concentrated pockets. Yeah. If you can take 3,000 census tracts and just attack those and deal with 75% of the problem, that's much better than having a nationwide problem, which you have to do some huge federal thing about. And the bad news is, the big headline bad news is there's 600,000 kids out there with elevated lead levels. We need to bring that number down. And you know, we didn't need a Reuters investigation to find that. That's public knowledge. That's the standard incidence of lead poisoning nationwide. The good news is that we now know how to do that. We know where to go to do that. It is good news. So it's not such a depressing story after all. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Talking of children, Jordan. Yes. Um, if I'm a kid in China... How likely is it that I'm going to get an amazing education? Well, I think if you'd been uh, talking to a lot of American politicians or even some education walks a few years ago, you'd have been hearing a lot about China's like dominant education system um, and just how they're outclassing the United States left and right. We're worried about their test scores always being higher than the Americans. Much higher. And a lot of that is based on uh, this thing the um, called the PISA exam. It's an international test done by the OECD. Not going to get too much into the acronyms, but this one big international test where essentially they were just taking, uh, uh, in 2009, they were just taking scores from kids in Shanghai. And those scores were just like astronomical. And so President Obama even got freaked out and said, this is our Sputnik moment, right? But recently, we had the 2015 results come out for PISA. And they didn't just test kids in Shanghai this time. They actually looked at four different provinces. And all of a sudden, China's results are starting to drop a bit. You're starting to see all of a sudden they're 10th in science, 6th in math, 27th in reading. I think they actually did a bit worse in reading. But that's still than, better than the United States. Uh, not on reading, but still better. And again, now... One of the interesting things is, okay, they've expanded to four provinces in China, but, and they're big provinces, like, you know, it's like Guangdong, which is like on the coast. And it's, a, I think it's almost like 100 million people or something like that. But uh, it's still not the majority of the country. And so what we're beginning to see in, in China is this vast amount of educational inequality. Um, and we, I think we're kind of starting to scratch the surface of it. And one of the outgrowths of that is this startup in China, which I sent you an article from Bloomberg about this week. Um, where it is connect it is providing online elementary and high school education to Chinese students and connecting them with teachers in the United States who will teach them American style. They'll teach them math, they'll teach them English, they'll teach them reading, et cetera. All of that. The startup is called VIP Kid. And it, it's fascinating because we've had all this envy about Chinese education for years now. And what we're learning is that parents in China are are desperate for American style education to some degree, or at least <laughs> what what is marketed as high end American and, education. And is this the parents in Shanghai whose kids are getting amazing test scores? Is this the parents in you know, rural areas who have very bad education? I think to some extent it looks like it's... Well, okay, so it has to be a parent that can afford to pay for it, right? So it's not going to be the most desperate you know, parents in 
far out Western China. But that but, said, there is this problem in China that if you move to a city and start making lots of money, there are rules preventing you from bringing your kids with you and enrolling your kids in the local school in the rich city where you're at. So it, there's, I can easily imagine that there are parents in rich cities in China whose kids are getting a bad rural education. That, that's very possible. And I mean, to give you a sense of the price, it's, you know, about $21 per class. You can get a package of 72 classes for 1500 bucks. Um, and that's like a semester, a year? Uh, 72 classes. Meets about twice a week. So yeah, it's yeah. about half a year. So it, let me just back up a bit. There's yeah. it, it From what I understand, there's a basically two class system of of education for children in China. It's the city education and the rural education. As as, as Felix pointed out, the par- many many parents who've moved to the city do not have access to the good city education. And the and the rural education is both inferior and expensive. Like this this the teachers there is basically high fees to pay for this for the teachers for that. Um and so the the irony for me is when we talk about the money here. So the the Bloomberg article about Americans teaching these Chinese kids. The Bloomberg article said, "Well, if we in America aren't going to teach pay pay for good teachers, then the Chinese people will pick up the tab." In other words, the, the Chinese people are paying for our teachers. We we should totally be exporting our teaching prowess to China. That's a little great little American export to China. God knows we don't have very many of them. Well, it's I mean, it it's funny, but you know, we are. I mean, it's so this this startup VIP kid it's about it went from 200 to 5000 uh teachers in a year yeah yeah i mean like that's which is i mean that that's huge growth really quickly they've got they've raised about 125 million dollars and not, they're not the only one it's fascinating also just you know the i think the role that like kind of for profit education is playing here i think in the us we have um this uh, totally justified and rational aversion to for-profit education. A lot of people are very, because it's been sort of an awful, awful industry here. But abroad, in countries that don't really have such a great infra- infrastructure for public education, it, it's been a little bit more of a force for good. And people- I, I've been spending a little bit of time with people who run private schools in the Middle East. And some of these schools are just amazing and they cater to expats um, and there are tiers of these schools. And so you get the lowest tier um, schools for like the Pakistani workers and then the middle tier um, schools for the middle tier workers. And then you get these incredibly grand sort of Norman Foster designed high schools for the oil industry, Americans and Brits who are running millions of dollars a year. And what's fascinating is that the difference in price between these schools is really quite enormous. But the difference in outcomes is basically zero. The you can the, the <laughs> kids the kids all graduate from all of these schools with amazing grades. And you can get a fantastic education even at a very low price school. So I mean, here's what's going on from my perspective. Yeah. We are just conflating too many things when we say online education. Yeah. Right? The thing about there's a lot of things that make this Chinese system potentially work. Um, and the the first, the most important two things are that it's not really online classes. It's online tutoring. Like it's one-on-one as far as I heard. Is that not true? Uh, no, I believe those are classes. They are classes. Yeah. So it's not too, there, there are in China, they do have tutoring. There are tutoring programs too, which, you know, the, those are blowing up as well. So the but VIP kids, this is, these are classes. Oh, okay. I misunderstood. Um, well, in any case, the, it seems like the, the teachers are 
are well-respected, well-paid, and they seem to really interact with those kids. I think the other really important thing that doesn't happen for the students at what we consider like the shitty for-profit online colleges in this country is that you have those parents who are putting really hard-earned money into this and are hovering over their kids and making sure those kids really learn their English and their lessons. And we don't have that same kind of support system for so the one typical of, online uh, learner in this country. I remember the... The, the time I first heard about Udacity when like no one had heard of MOOCs and I went to this speech in Munich of all places where Sebastian Thrun announced that he you know that he was starting Udacity and that everyone was going to do these amazing things with online learning and it was full of hope and you know vision and what happened very very quickly was that it it became obvious that if you set a price of zero for these courses, then 99% of people taking the courses are going to drop out. And the one of the reasons why people go to university, one of the reasons why people go to school, one of the reasons why it's so important, for that matter, one of the reasons why people go to offices is because it's important to just have a physical space where you can be in the mindset of doing a certain work. And that if you just kind of say, well, I can do this at home, you probably won't. Yeah, And so... I think you're right that the Chinese parents are probably saying, okay, here's your room, go do your lessons, and they really create a space for that. But I do wonder how scalable that is. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and here's another question, like the, and this is just a question about the future of China, it's not answerable. But like, you know, it's clear that uh, ch the Chinese people who are currently are fluent in English and have a relatively good education have a huge step up in China. But if you have an enormous number of kids who can speak English, that doesn't mean they're all going to do very, very well. Um, and that's what we're headed for if we if we if we keep seeing this kind yeah. of growth. I I should say I just double checked. Apparently, so language classes at least are one on one. So it is more there okay. are yeah there are like full immersion classes that. So you're right on there. Yeah. Um, I do think also though it's interesting just about what China might show us about the future of online education and can it work? Um, th there are yeah. There are things about th this company that it seems to be discovering that could be brought over here. Like they, they seem to be finding that when kids can pick their own teachers, they do better. Interesting. Which is like a fat like which is fascinating because it's not about like it's not about rating a teacher necessarily like we do here like you know based on test scores or something or it's not necessarily the the parent picking a teacher but it's literally the kid just saying I work I like this one I like you know I Mrs. Mean, Jones th that does happen in college right people kids students te choose their teachers yeah but we don't think about that way in elementary education that's true, we so don't. much and so that's that's kind of a, a really cool lesson like maybe these experiments will lead to bigger pedagogical discoveries uh, that you know could be Turn, uh, scaled internationally. Who knows? It'll definitely l run into this woman getting very, very rich, right? The, Maybe. The founder, I think. Yeah, apparently, well, that and like Kobe Bryant and Jack Ma, who are also investors right now. Yeah. The, slate Money does not give investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, the, the one thing I've learned is that when, it, when you get a big hyped billion dollar company, the chances that the founder of that company will actually turn out to be very rich in the end are far from Certain. What's our definition there's of very a, rich? A, How about like normal rich? There's a lot of there's a lot of things which can go wrong. Just Elizabeth Holmes, Sebastian. Holmes. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So I put out a little snarky tweet about yes, ambulance chases. Um, earlier this week because I saw some unspeakable lawyer from 1-800-AMBULANCE-CHASES <laughs> deciding to um, sue, like, Google and Twitter and Facebook over, you know, a tragedy in Orlando. And, um, and Kathy yeah. weirdly said that I was maybe a little bit too cynical about this. Well, l- let let the listenership decide. Um <laughs> The lawsuit was filed um, by these lawyers. You're right. They were ambulance chasers. I'll give you that. Um, On behalf of the uh, the families of the victims of the Orlando shooter at the Pulse nightclub, if you guys remember, the gay nightclub that was that this radicalized, so like self-proclaimed ISIS follower um, shot. Um, And the idea that the lawsuit um, is suggesting is that Google, Facebook and Twitter aided and abetted the radicalization of the shooter and are and and are responsible for that radicalization and therefore responsible to some extent for their their family members death and in fact the lawsuit claims without any evidence as far as i can see that google and facebook and twitter were paying isis the that somehow there was some kind of weird revenue share and well, the isis well, would do posts on these platforms and then there would be ads against the post and then Google would pay and don't I'm like that's a pretty don't be no that argument don't be so dismissive yeah so I, I I read the lawsuit so Felix did you read it no <laughs> wait, wait the, the Felix, just throw this show together you know? Felix just gave me the I didn't do the homework look <laughs> anyway so this lawsuit is operating on one big slightly tenuous but interesting theory um, and to understand it, you have to start by realizing that companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter are all protected under federal law by this thing called the Communications Decency Act of 1996 or the the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And it's this provision called Section 230, which basically says you will these companies will not be held responsible for things that third parties post on them. So if someone writes something libelous on Facebook or uh, you cannot sue Facebook for part, as part of your libel case, right? And the idea they is are that they're, they're just platforms. They're they, not they're not creating that content. Exactly. They're just platforms. And and in 1996 this seemed like a essential thing to protect an open internet. That you, know, you couldn't be sued for something. That slate couldn't be sued for something that somebody wrote in the comments section. Exactly. Right? Like that's the idea here. And it protects yeah. bloggers, yeah. it protects comments, it protects a lot of things that are posted on YouTube. Yeah. Things like that. And so well, it doesn't protect the person who posts the content, but it protects the the platform, like yes. you're saying. So how are you going to sue Facebook and Twitter over this strategy? Well, what they're saying is that, what these lawyers are saying, is that by pairing their, the, this ISIS content, these ISIS posts with ads, they are essentially creating new content. And that because they are participating in this new in the creation of this new content and, and making a profit off it, they are no longer protected by Section 230. Now- I don't necessarily think that's a great argument as far as how uh, Google is supposedly paying ISIS. Um, the issue here is that Google has 
allowing is allowing them to run ads before their videos sometimes, which requires some sort of approval process. And when you put up your video with AdSense and you get you put an ad before it, you share the revenues between okay, Google. Okay, can and I can I just like jump in here and ask when you say Google is allowing them to run ads before their videos. You're kind of implying here that Google is okay with ISIS videos and does not take them down, no. and in fact, no, is perfectly do. happy I, to run I, ads. I'm saying what they are. I, I'm saying what the, I, I'm presenting the lawsuits theory here. Okay, but now, but, but the, in reality, yes, this is not true. In reality, when ISIS videos are found, they are not just shown without ads. They are not shown at all. They are taken down. Twitter is taking down tens of thousands of ISIS accounts, you know, every week. That both Twitter and Facebook and Google all have active attempts to try and just remove this content. They are explicitly censoring this content. I don't see where the idea comes from that they are not just um, allowing it, but that they're encouraging it because they make ad revenue from it. Let me give you another example, which is not ISIS. ISIS is an extreme. There was an, uh, a pretty well-known example recently of if you asked Google about the Holocaust, um, the, f- the number one hit and the number one ad yeah, was a Holocaust-denying uh, website yeah, called we, Stormfront. We, we discussed this, yes. Right. Okay. They made a lot of money on that ad. They made a lot of money um, on that Stormfront ad, um, which, by the way, they're protected by ads as well as content. Google's protected by ads by the same Section 230. Um, but the question is, to at what point do you hold Google somewhat responsible for it when they are actually directly profiting yeah, off well, of it? So I think what we're, yeah, I mean that that is a good question. Where do you, you know, where do you draw the line so that you still have a free and open internet and these companies do not have a incentive to take advantage of speech that is destructive? And that also gets the really core question of just like what kind of, of speech do we as Americans think is so beyond the pale that it shouldn't be allowed on these platforms? And these are all hard questions. And but... I think we have answers to them. Yeah. Though. I mean, I think the answer is that, yeah. you know, Stormfront is an odious organization, but it is yeah. legal and they can run ads. And that's entirely legal if deplorable. Whereas ISIS is a terrorist organization, which is illegal and they cannot run ads. And we don't make money off them. And I think the line is drawn very clearly between Stormfront and ISIS. And I think that trying to analogize um, from ISIS back to Stormfront doesn't work because Google and Twitter and Facebook really do draw the line in between those two groups. I do think there are other questions also just about how, you know, how forcefully they're going after. I mean, you know, they are, how much of an effort are they making to take down even these extreme cases, the, the terrorism ads? They're still relying heavily on, you know, flagging from their communities and things like that. And there are questions about whether or not they're doing enough to prevent, whether Twitter is doing enough to prevent these these jihadi groups from creating new accounts once they've been pushed out, once they've, they've had their old account uh, blocked. So I don't think we should necessarily assume perfectly, you know, perfectly good effort on the part of these companies. I think it does raise the question is, are they doing enough? We should think about that. Let me give you a case. I think uh, what I think really is a hard case in terms of Section 230 these days, which is straight up libel, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of the oldest speech issues. You know, there was an article in New York Mag recently about how a a favorite tactic of some alt writers these days is just accuse people of pedophilia, Mm -hmm. right? Which is libelous. <laughs> you don't get you don't get much more straight up libel than that. Now, let's say you do that on Facebook, 
And Facebook then starts promoting that post to people through its algorithm. Because now, it's clicked on Because so much, it's clicked yeah. on, because of whatever. So at what point does Facebook's algorithm really become complicit in spreading yes. libel? That's exactly section, what I mean. So, so a, a, a straight up libel case. Now, Section 230 was created at a time when it was thought of as like a free and open internet where you go and search things and you kind of have to go look hard for this kind of content where you, ha- you really had to go look for that libelous pe- post. Now, you know, you're, uh, you are on the w- World Wide Web. <laughs> you are surfing. Now you are being fed something that is potentially, you know, uh, not a legal speech, but you're being fed speech that is damaging and, and is legally actionable. So I think there are hard cases now that we may have to rethink in terms of the new way we get information, the way these platforms interact with. And I don't know what the answers are. I don't know how you write I don't either. It, I'm not a legal scholar. I, I do think so there wait, are fair are you, questions here. Okay. So, I mean, let's t- ask the obvious question. Let's say that the Facebook algorithm inadvertently does end up amplifying libelous accusation accusations of pedophilia um you're the expert on this kathy you you wrote this book about algorithms um you would want to weaken section 230 so as to allow the people damaged by those accusations to sue not only the people who made the accusations but also facebook I would, yes. I mean, I don't know exactly. I'm not, as I said, I'm not a legal scholar. I would want to somehow hold Facebook legally responsible for dealing with this in a in a in a sort of in a comprehensive way. Right now, what we're having is, you know, they're like, so oh, it's the, the algorithm. Sorry, in, we in, can't. In order to do that, they would need to make determinations as to what was libelous. That's right. right. Yeah. No, I definitely think and they I should do that. I don't think that I, you see, and that's where I disagree. I don't think that it is Facebook's position. I don't think they're qualified to do that. They're not right now, but they could pay some of that profit to become qualified to do that. I no, I don't think that's that's right at all. I think libel cases. Uh, things which stretch on for years and are extremely expensive. And it's not something where you can just find an expert who will say, yes, that's libelous. Okay, let me let me say it this way. People think, th- and tell me if you're, I'm wrong, people think that you either have some kind of messy human uh, policy of gatekeeping or you have a perfect algorithmic policy of gatekeeping. My point is that the algorithm is not up to the task. So we have to go to the messy thing, which is not... It's not like the shitty alternative. It turns out it's probably the best alternative. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, and this is a theme we've we've talked about on the show many times now, which is just that things like Section 230 were premised on the idea of platforms not making editorial decisions. And now we have algorithms making editorial decisions. And it's not as if algorithms are neutral. It's just automated editorializing. Right. And so the problem, though, is when you want to deal with, you know, how do you police this stuff is, okay, let's say... Is how how do you prevent that from freezing out necessary speech? Like, let's say, okay, someone you have you have a rule that if someone says I'm being libeled, that post gets taken down. Well, you can obviously see how that would be abused, Absolutely. because someone who is not being libeled but just wants something unflattering taken down could alert Facebook and say, and you, you can't just this. say, you know, I, I'm I should be allowed to accuse Jimmy Savile of being a pedophile because Jimmy Savile was a pedophile. You can't just sort of say that accusations of pedophilia are things that in and of themselves I'm not should saying not be this allowed. Is, this, I'm not saying there's an easy answer. I'm saying there's no easy answer. Well, if there's no easy answer, then I don't think you should make this something which Facebook can be sued for. Like, I don't think there should be some kind of weird civil or criminal liability on Facebook's part for, doing some, for not doing something which can't be done. 
Well, I disagree. I think that what we're what I'm saying is that right now, Facebook, Google, they're getting a ton of profit off of doing something that's kind of damaging, possibly very damaging to society. And we have to figure out a way to hold them responsible without ruining everything. Hi, I'm Frances Fry. And I'm Ann Morris. And we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues, or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. Give us a call, and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen. Okay, numbers round. Who I has ha- a number? I've got a number. You've got a number? What's your number? 112. Um, there were 16 cars in seven days. So that's 16 times seven, which is 112 car days um, <laughs> in which Uber was allowed or was using self-driving cars in San Francisco before they got pulled. Yeah. Didn't and get permission. They did not get permission. They were just like in total Uber style, gonna do it anyway. Yeah, apparently they the, the biker the like the bicyclists were infuriated because they discovered that like Uber was just making turns that were very yeah. Uber cars were making turns that were very likely to injure poor cyclists. Not only that, but they went through a bunch of red lights. So anyway, we'll see what happens with that. But it, as a kind of like Uber hater, I love seeing this kind of thing happen. My number is seventeen. This is a number which comes from Uganda, where you have 91% of Ugandan girls are enrolled in primary school, which is a good number, but you only have 22% of Ugandan girls enrolled in secondary school. There's this massive drop-off, and they're trying to work out why this massive drop-off. And it turns out that if you just tell these girls about puberty, and you give them some sanitary towels, absenteeism reduces by 17%. Wow. Let's, so, let's do that. Let's give them free pads. Free pads basically means you're 17% more likely to stay in school. All right, my number uh, is sort of holiday-ish themed a little bit. It's 40. My number is 40. That's how many pounds Oprah Winfrey has apparently lost on Weight Watchers. We have discussed the demise of Weight Watchers on this show, and I believe actually Oprah's investment in it previously. And so they are now using her really as a spokeswoman, saying her you know experience losing weight on this is, uh, is going to be featured in her ads. And apparently after losing like half its value over the course of the year, uh, the news that Oprah had lost 40 pounds uh, drove up the stock like 14%. So yeah, that that was in pre market. That was in thin pre market trading. They went straight back down again, and it has thin, to be quote put, good pun. <laughs> and it has to it has to be put in the context of Weight Watchers shares being basically worthless compared to where they were just a couple However, of years ago. However, given given how much of a stake she has in that, I would like to you to work out how much profit per pound lost she that that figures out for her because oh I would probably given those stakes, I'd probably lose twenty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but no, I think this is this is true. And one of the things we know about all weight loss programs is that losing the weight is not easy, but it's not the hardest bit. And the problem, as we found with previous Weight Watch spokespeople like Jessica Simpson, is that after you lose the weight, you then put it back on. And that the more weight you lose, the easier it is to regain weight. And the faster you lose weight, the easier it is to regain weight. And if you look at the people who won the biggest loser competition um, on the television, which who lost vast amounts of weight, 
they are now they have these crazy metabolisms where they can eat like half a banana and suddenly put on the pounds. <laughs> it's completely insane. I like that. That was your like one 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 answer summary for why Weight Watchers doesn't work. It had like fifteen facts in it. <laughs> but yes, Weight Watchers does not work. Save it, your money. It's not. It's not <laughs> the not, worst of not these fall programs. Do not for Oprah in her fluctuating way. It's actually no. I, love I mean, her. I, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that Weight Watchers doesn't work. I think that Weight Watchers does help people be more conscious about what they're eating. They it does help people be more conscious about their general health and wellness. And that at the margin, it's a good thing. I I'm not anti Weight Watchers, but I do think that there's no easy way of keeping the pounds off. As I've learned this year. <laughs> as, as my genes are telling me right it's, now. It's wait a second. That time wait of a year, second. People. Question. Jordan, uh-huh. didn't you have a New Year's resolution last January? That's so bad. Oh, fell by the wayside. It was yes. like lifting so weights. No, 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 here we go. Yeah, okay. so I Jordan getting swole. swole. So that was one of my New Year's resolutions <laughs> was to get swole. I even like bought books on it and read them. And did I you did, lift weights? I a few times. Um <laughs> <laughs> I I I you know I I did get swollen, perhaps. <laughs> it's not swole. <laughs> As my pants size will tell you. Uh, so, yeah. but isn't isn't your pants size meant to go go up when you get swole? I, I, no, no, <laughs> no. It's, I have I a, think maybe your maybe your shirt size is. I think but... everybody for this January, given who's being inaugurated, um, should like their New Year's resolution should be to gain ten pounds. <laughs> I, I, I gain see how much emotional eating you can like, do. We'll, in we'll Jan- finally be able to like fulfill our New Year's resolution. We're so gonna have a wet January. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna. I, I gained a bunch of weight. Um, after Trump was elected, and of course I blame Trump. And, um, oh, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. So as long as he's president, I'm I can I can blame Trump for everything, including whatever you know, extra pudge pudge. I might I might gain. <laughs> I'm I'm going to go on record. My New Year's resolution is to gain ten pounds and start smoking. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think we'll check back next we'll, we'll year. We'll check back but this I, time next year. I think you can do it, Kathy. I've got confidence in you. You, you want to eat some lead while you're at it? <laughs> Jesus. Let's not. Okay, it doesn't work for grown ups very well. Let's not joke about that. Oh Come on, guys. Okay. Some, enough some standards on this enough show. Enough of this. Send us some ideas and questions because obviously we're just slailing here. <laughs> Slate money at slate.com. Subscribe to the show. Listen to our craft beer show next week. We'll be back in the new year. Many thanks to. Zach Dynastine, Andy Bowers, Steve Lichtai, and all of the various producer types around these parts. These parts being iTunes.com slash Panoply, the Panoply Network. Uh, yeah. Enjoy the craft beer episode next week, and we will come back with a slightly more regular episode in January. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.